Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 102 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Slime, an interview with Jenna Luce Thayer. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, this was just a fascinating interview where we have a limey who, after getting through her challenges, was able to use her experience to make changes in the Lyme community. And I'm really interested in getting your take on how you feel about the work that this wonderful woman did for folks like you in the Lyme disease community. Well, Rich, Jenna just gave me such hope and really is such an inspiration because she was sick for decades and finally got a Lyme diagnosis and actually reached remission. And with that remission, she made real changes in the Lyme community to help people who are in the throes of their illness. So Matt, the reason she made the changes that she has made for folks like you is that one of the biggest challenges that doctors had who wanted to properly diagnose people who were suffering from various symptoms of Lyme disease is that there was no code for the various symptoms and Jenna made real change there. Correct, she's actually responsible for the congenital Lyme code, for the central nervous system Lyme code, among many others, which are these debilitating symptoms from Lyme disease. So Matt, without further ado, Jenna Luce Thayer and Slime. Hey Jenna, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. Now, we're blessed to have you, and we know our, our listeners are going to be really excited uh, and are excited to hear all the cool things you're going to share with them. So, Jenna, tell us where you're from. That's a good question. Um, I was actually born in Vietnam. Um, my, my father and mother were serving there through the International Voluntary Services, which was started under the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe and then went into Southeast Asia. So I was born in Vietnam uh, right before the war and we were there at the early part of the war. And then I lived in Thailand and then West Africa, Burkina Faso and Tanzania. And I also went to school in Europe. Um, so I really didn't land, spend too much time in the States until I was an adult. Okay. Um, I'm an American citizen. <laughs> so uh, that's, a, that's a really cool background. So. Um... Tell us about your, uh, your educational background. Um, well, I went to, uh, uh, as a child, I went to a mix of private schools and I also had some like homeschooling. And I also went to some public schools because we were going between different environments and different countries and cultures. And um, I did my undergraduate degrees at two different universities. Arizona and James Madison, and I did my graduate degree at a school up in Vermont, which is now called World Learning Inc., which is based on the global citizens and united worldview on trying to see all of us as living on one planet. <laughs> a very interesting place to go, very uh, um, based on experiential learning principles where everything you learn in theory has to be put into practice in order to graduate. Um, uh, so that, that's my academic credentials. I got a master's degree there um, in international development administration, which was, a, I did my focus on human rights and access to basic services. So when you graduated from your various uh, educational institutions, what did you do for work? Well, actually I went to work prior to going to graduate school and I was working while I was in in college and before college. My first career was a professional ballerina. <laughs> uh, and then um, I worked various jobs while I was in school, 
um, to supplement my school costs, you know, meet my school costs. Um, I got a, a, some grant money as well. Um, I had an artist in residence um, fund when I was in graduate school because I used my arts background to help get that while I was working on basically political science and human rights. <laughs> um, uh, and I did Peace Corps uh, prior to going back to graduate school. When I graduated from college, I'd already suffered a number of physical injuries, which I didn't know was related to Lyme disease. And my uh, career in ballet was, dance was cut short because of that. I couldn't really maintain the, the physical um, duress of that, of that career. Um, so as I was trying to figure out what to do, I had always thought that being a Peace Corps volunteer could be a very worthwhile activity. And maybe that would lead me to some next steps in my life. And that's what I did. I, went and served for two and a half years in North Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer. So, Jenna, let's give our audience a context for your life and Lyme. When were you diagnosed with Lyme disease? At what age? I was diagnosed at the age of 52. And now that you have the uh, opportunity to look back at your life and look back at the challenges that you've had, the, the medical challenges that you've had in your life, when do you believe that you were uh, exposed to Lyme? Well, at the age of 16, I developed a Bell's palsy and severe fatigue and severe joint pain and swollen joints. My knees, my ankles, my even my elbows were oddly swollen. And for three months, I was in this state of severe fatigue and swollen joints and a Bell's palsy which for a 16-year-old girl was, you know, oh, no, my life is over. <laughs> um, you know, I saw my, this side of my, my right side of my face was drooping. Um, but then I think because I was young and re relatively robust health uh, as an athlete and good health habits and everything, um, those symptoms resolved. Um, they got much better, although I still had periods of time where I would just kind of crash. So that was kind of the beginning of my Lyme journey. Um, so Jenna, where were you living at that time, at the age of 16? I was living in Switzerland. And I was dancing with the Grand Théâtre de Genève, which is uh, the, the Swiss ballet company. So you believe that you were bitten by a tick when you were living in Switzerland? You know, I, I'm not sure because we were also living, I was also in West Africa where uh, relapsing fever Borreliosis is rampant, but Switzerland has very high rates of um, Lyme disease. And I had the classic Lyme symptoms with the Bell's palsy. So I believe that's where I was contracted it there. And we, we thought nothing of lying in the grass on a beautiful spring day and looking up at the sky, you know. Which, which of course begs the question, uh, you were not afraid to engage in what we now know to be very risky behavior. So tell us what you knew about ticks and tick diseases during the course of your childhood. It's really interesting because I grew up in, in Asia and Africa, we were very aware of mosquito-borne illness. And we did a lot to prevent getting infected by mosquito-borne illness. And one of the things I learned in, in general about vector-borne, insect-borne illness is that 
you can protect yourself, but inevitably you will probably contract an infected borne illness because mosquitoes are small and they are everywhere. I never was told or thought to think that ticks were carriers of disease. So you knew nothing about, did you, were you aware of the existence of ticks or were you just not aware that they were vectors we of, of disease? That a mosquito bite could be very dangerous, but a tick bite was nothing to worry about. And we were a very active family. We were camping. We were always outside doing things. We always did tick checks, but we never did them with the fear of having disease. It was just take a tick off, you know, that's all. Check for ticks, take them off, pull them off, right? <laughs> so you <laughs> recall having tick bites, you know. So Jenna, you do recall having been bitten by ticks and having multiple them times, multiple yeah. times. We lived in um, agricultural areas. We always had a semi-farm ourselves, and we're surrounded by farming communities. Um, had livestock that we took care of, animal companions, multiple tick bites. So the only steps you took to protect yourself from ticks was just to check and remove. There were no other steps that you were taking to protect yourself from ticks. And you didn't know that you should be protecting yourselves from tick diseases. No, I didn't know anything really about tick-borne diseases until the early 80s. So, so um, you know, uh, so I was bitten in 76 and I didn't know about anything until about 81. Okay. So let's talk about let's talk about your experience. No, I'm not with, sorry, not 81. Uh, even later, late 80s. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk about the experience you had when you were 16. So you had you had this experience when you were 16, where you had various symptoms which you just described. Did you did you visit a doctor uh, to be treated for the symptoms that you developed when you were 16? Yes, I went what, to a doctor, and I was told that my my physical activities were too much for a young woman and that I should cut back on my physical activities. So the doctor <laughs> diagnosed you with being too active, not with any form of a tick disease or any other type of illness. Yeah. And I remember asking the doctor, I said, well, how come my friends can do these things without any problem? And what was the doctor's response? No response. So now talk with us about how your symptoms affected your life moving forward. You're 16, you're, you're, you're an athlete, you're working towards what sounds to be a, uh, a professional career as a dancer. How did your, uh, your symptoms uh, from your tick disease impact your life moving forward? Well, I started sustaining a lot of injuries uh, in my dance career. Um, I just very easily tore ligaments and tendons. Um, I would collapse with fatigue. I was always having some kind of injury one after the other. And yes, it's a very, very demanding sport, you know, or whatever exercise, uh, ballet in particular, it's kind of not very natural to the body. But my other peer group, because we were still in our teens, you know, were, they were not suffering at that point, these kinds of injuries. So I remember just getting very frustrated and thinking that maybe I had to do something else. I started moving away from ballet and moving into more performance art, um, multimedia kinds of things, uh, just kind of, because I was feeling frustrated by my body not being able to keep up with the, with the demands of ballet. Um, and then uh, by the time I was, um, I remember 
I went to university and um, I had to schedule my classes so that I could sleep in the middle of the day. So I would take my classes in the morning then I'd have a break in the middle of the day and sleep. And then I would go back to classes in the afternoon into the evening. So that's how I could maintain a, a regular college schedule um, and, and my other demands. Um, and then by the time I was, I think the end of my 18th year or beginning of my 19th year, yeah, 19th year, when I was 19, I started to develop a lot of very severe light sensitivity. And um, my friends were making fun of me because I was wearing sunglasses in, inside, not just outside, inside. And you weren't just wearing glasses because you wanted to be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was getting a lot of ribbing about, you know, yeah, Jenna, you're so cool. I was like, yeah, I had to wear sunglasses inside because I had such light sensitivity. And, um, and, and I remember going to the doctor and they said it's because you have blue eyes. You know, you're sensitive to light because you have blue eyes. I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> and I was thinking, I mean, I had lived in Africa and Asia. And yeah, we always, you know, knew that, you know, the sun was strong and blue eyes, fair skin, you're more sensitive to the sun in general. But I was like, I never remembered, like, you know, <laughs> having to wear sunglasses inside. So I had developed uh, a lot of, and, and I started having, um, a lot of just, I would call these just crashes where like I would just run out of energy. I'd be going along and then suddenly just have no energy. And I remember thinking to myself how I had to start to organize my time like I did my class schedule to build in breaks every day in order to meet all, all, all of my responsibilities and demands, which I did and I was a young person, but I was a very responsible young person in many ways. Um, so Jenna, let's 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 review some of this story so that we can we can now have a larger context. So the first thing you identify as an athlete was that you you were having a very different experience physically or medically from all of the other athletes that you were training with. You went to see a doctor and the doctor said, "Oh, you're just pushing yourself too hard." Right. You you now go to university and you now see again you're having a very different experience in your peers. You're scheduling your classes so that you can take naps during the day and no one else is doing that. And you're wearing sunglasses inside because you have light sensitivity and that causes you to now go to see a doctor again. And the doctor, again, does not diagnose you with anything other than having blue eyes and fair skin. Correct. All right, so now let's-, and, let's and, and one of my best friends from university, um, one reason we became so close was because she was responsible for getting me out of bed in the morning. Because I had such difficulty getting up out of bed, she would come literally to my room every morning and just shake me until I got out of bed. You know, Jenna, get up, get up, get up. So I had people helping me to maintain my schedule. And I so, was 18. So you're, you're now visiting doctors and you're giving them an outline of your symptoms and you're sharing with them that your experience is different than all of your peers, yet your doctors are not giving you any type of a diagnosis that would help you to understand why you're having a different experience. Okay. So now how did, how did your developing symptoms impact you after you left university and you moved into the marketplace? Well, so I had a, a I had a, um, uh, a strange medical thing happened to me, which is part of the story. And I ended up um, fracturing my, having my, my, my skull fractured 
and I was leaking cerebral spinal fluid out of my nose for eight months. And um, it went undiagnosed for eight months. I was told I had allergies and I was trying to get out of um, classes and I wanted attention and how was I getting along with my boyfriend and blah, 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 blah. So this eight month period though, um, I became more and more ill and um, eventually my blood work showed very abnormal. And then eventually I was actually diagnosed as having leaking cerebral spinal fluid out of my nose. And because of that, this was in the early 70s, they really didn't know what to do, but they had just started um, experimenting with microsurgery. And I had one of the top neurologists in the world basically go up into my brain and mend the tears and breaks that had occurred. And because of that, I was put in, um, I was in a hospital ward for a long time, but prior to that, I was also in ICU for six weeks being pumped full of antibiotics and pumped full of whatever they kept me sedated. And then afterwards, I was also given a long, long course of antibiotics because my system was very weak. I was very easy to get sick. And so I was given uh, a very long course of antibiotics for a period of, and you know, intravenous antibiotics as well, uh, for a period of, um, I think, six months at least. And, you know, that was a, it may have been related, but I don't think it was, but it was a separate medical incident of insult to my body, but it resulted in me having access to a very intensive high course of IV antibiotics. And um, when I came out of that, which, you know, which was a long time coming out because if you're ICU for six weeks, your muscles atrophy, you have to rebuild everything, right? And, I, and um, I was told that my body had suffered a lot of different types of damage from this injury. And um, I went to a, an herbalist. Growing up in Africa and Asia, you go to herbalists all the time. That's the local medicine. And I had a lot of faith in them. And I went to a, an herbalist in, in where I was living. And they put me on a macrobiotic diet, which is an organic, very limited diet to have basically helped me completely cleanse my body and rebuild its strength and rebuild um, and, and uh, overcome all the damage that had been done. I had abnormal kidney, abnormal liver, abnormal neurological, everything. So um, that treatment, the, the macrobiotic diet, I did it for two years um, and, and uh, the herbal, I don't even know what she gave me. I just remember going to her and she would look at me and ask me questions, and then she'd give me a bag of herbs, and I would take them, you know? <laughs> okay, I was 19 years old, and I was on my own doing this. Doing this. But, you know, Jenna, this is, this is an interesting part of your journey, because I, I, I do need to share with you that this is not unique, at least to Matt and I and the listeners to our podcast, because we've had many, many guests, because of the neurological challenges that they were suffering from their Lyme disease, suffer head and brain injuries. So in some cases, it's concussions. In some cases, it's even more serious, as serious as yours. So I, I think this is a, a very interesting pattern that we've been observing pretty regularly where folks suffer head injuries as a consequence of the neurological challenges that they're facing with their Lyme disease. I think what's even more interesting about your journey, however, is that it seems like this experience allowed you to fall into a treatment protocol 
that helped you with your Lyme journey because you were given a course of antibiotics and you did in part because of your experiences as a child, find an herbalist who also probably helped your Lyme just um, coincidentally with the treatment that you were receiving from your, from your head injury. So why don't you share with us how your, your, uh, your macro treatment that included your, your, your dietary changes, your herbal uh, protocol, and your IV antibiotics. How did that help you with your health journey moving forward? Well, I mean, one of the things I remember is that I no longer had light, light sensitivity and um, I had uh, much more even energy. And, and that lasted for a while, but then things changed again. Well, talk about, talk about the, um, the role you think this combination therapy played in helping you with what you now know to be the symptoms of your tick disease that you are suffering between the ages of 16 and 19. Well, I think it put me into remission, functional remission. And I would say that has been the pattern of my journey uh, since I've been sick, that I have had, I've been able to enjoy long periods of functional remission. And how long were you in remission after the experience that you had when you were 19? When did your symptoms begin to resurface? Well, um, I started having issues again with uneven energy, you know, where I would just crash. I started having those again. I started having muscle and joint pain issues and issues with a lot of sleep disturbance. That started um, again up in my early 20s. So where were you in your life? Had you graduated from university and were you in the marketplace at that I time? I was graduating from university and joining in, going into Peace Corps. Now, what do you think changed with you physically? Do you believe that you were reinfected and, and as a consequence of a reinfection, you then lost remission? Or do you believe that there were stresses in your life that caused your immune system to be compromised and as a consequence, you now lost remission? Um, I, I could have been reinfected. I was working in an agricultural community in, in North Africa where again, we were getting tick bites. Um, I was working with livestock. I was doing animal husbandry beekeeping, you know, farming stuff. Um, I could have been reinfected, but I don't remember that being in particular. I think, you know, but I also was, I contracted amoeba, I contracted, you know, um, various other diseases <laughs> working on the ground, <laughs> you know? So I could have just had too much going on into my body in, in addition to the uh, Lyme disease. So, um, so I started to get kind of run down again, but then um, I was still young enough. I remember, I, I remember just getting super run down and then um, just sleeping a lot for weeks on end and then kind of getting better. And how long were you, um, how long were you limited by your re, reignition of your, of your Lyme disease? Well, I, I became so so um, careful in parsing my energy and time that I never felt very limited. I just remember sometimes family members and friends getting irritated with me because I would say, no, I can't do that. I have to rest. So you were one of the early Spoonies where you were recognizing that you had limited energy and you knew how and when to use your energy and you altered your life so that you could function with the limitations that you had. 
Correct. Now, were you treated with any? I didn't really consider them to be limitations, and that's part of the part of the thing because I remember, you know, it's kind of like when I had my head injury, and I said I have a terrible headache, and everybody said, "Oh yeah, you too," and then um, my nose is running. Oh well, you know, you have allergies, so kind of like the messaging always, like whatever I was feeling or experiencing was much less than what I was actually feeling or experiencing. So feedback loop I was always getting from people. Uh, including the medical profession. So, you know, I, to give you another example, um, I had a lot of back pain and then, you know, finally, 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 everybody said, oh, everybody has back pain. And then finally I got it. Finally, they agreed to do x-rays and they found that I had, you know, broken parts of my back. <laughs> I'm laughing, but because, you know, it's like, no, you know what I mean? I actually do You know, the little, you know, you have the, the spinal cord has little um, hooks on it to hold it in place. And I had broken off the hooks between my L4 and L5. <laughs> That's why I had <laughs> But Jen, I think this is an important cautionary tale for those who think they may have Lyme that if you're feeling sick and people are telling you it's normal, you know better than anybody that it's not normal. So you need to listen to yourself and, and move forward with that, that belief that, hey, this is not a normal nose, you know, runny nose, this is something else, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, as, as, as horrific as that experience was with my head injury, I have to tell you, it really served me very well going forward in terms of dealing with the medical community. And why is that? Why, 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 did, why did that set you up for having a better relationship with the medical community? Because I knew that unless the, the, I would basically go into a doctor's office and if they were not listening to me, I'd get another doctor. Because I mean, how, how is it possible that somebody, at eight, a, a young person who's in good health goes in and complains again and again and again about something and nobody's listening to them? But your experience, huh? but Jenny, your experiences with doctors really didn't improve, even though you were willing to ignore no, the mean, bad advice no, no it's not that the it's just that it made me much more assertive in terms of dealing with the medical establishment i'm not saying that doctors suddenly improved i'm just saying that if i went to make an appointment before i even made an appointment with a doctor i would ask a series of questions to the office to find out what kind of doctor they were and if they failed to meet my expectations i would find another doctor in other words there was no way i was going to waste any time with a doctor who did not listen to me when I explained what was going on with me. So I became far more assertive in terms of my, uh, expect, uh, my demands on the medical, medical field. And Jenna, you, you started doing this at a time when you were around 20 years old, but you didn't get diagnosed until you were 52. So what do you think was the reason that it took so long to get diagnosed, even though you were being so aggressive with your doctors to pursue a proper diagnosis? Well, first of all, I didn't really, um, I wasn't really in particular looking for a diagnosis because I had so many different symptoms going on. So I was open in terms of what could this be. And what started to happen um, was, you know, I was being told all kinds of responses, which I knew were complete, completely ridiculous. For example, my fatigue got to be so bad that I had to put a cot in my office. And I was traveling internationally 70% of the time. So I had a reason to be tired. And I was going into third world countries. It wasn't like I was flying to Paris, you know. I was flying to Guinea-Conakry and then going out into the bush and then coming back. So I was putting a lot of stress on my body. 
but at the same time, I was the youngest senior technical advisor at the UN in that, in that, in that UN agency. And men, and I was the only woman, and the men who were 10 and 15 years older than me, they seemed to have no trouble with their travel schedule and go out and party on top of that, you know? So I was like, why is this that I'm so, I'm so, you know, I can put, put all my energy into my job, but I have to be, I crash and I crash and I crash. And so when the doctors were telling me it was stress related, I said, well, how come all these other people are able to manage this? I'm not, you know, manage quote unquote, a stressful lifestyle and I'm not able to. And I, I just didn't get any, I got a lot of actually very sexist remark, um, feedback on why I couldn't manage it. Um, so, uh, Jenna, let, let's explore that though, Jenna. So talk to us about these sexist comments you got, because you're not the first guest to talk to us about that, where doctors would dismiss women as just being hysterical or overreacting more so than men. So can you describe for us what that was like for you and give us a specific example of when that occurred? I can give you so many examples. I remember when my back was hurting and um, they finally agreed to do uh, x-rays on my back. And they saw that I had broken uh, the spine, the parts of my L4, L5 vertebrae. And the doctor said, you might never be able to have children. And I said, I'm not here about babies. <laughs> no, I'm here because I'm having problems walking. <laughs> You know, kind of like looking at me as a reproductive body as opposed to a person, you know, in my own, with my own agency, you know, like that would be my biggest issue is having a baby, you know, <laughs> I was like, I'd like to be able to move without pain, you know, let's talk about babies at some other time. And I was, it was in my early 20s. So that I remember that. And then when we prior that when I had the head injury, and I kept going into the doctors and saying my head is hurting, hurting, hurting. You know, I have all this liquid coming out of my fluid, coming out of my nose. What could it be? Um, and they had said, you know, I wanted attention. Um, they they would refer me with a note, I think, saying, you know, just don't don't do anything. Like, you know, just I mean, it's like I had a regular Friday night date with a doctor, you know, and they would never do anything. The reason I got the diagnosis for my head injury was because I walked in without an appointment to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And I said, it's coming out of my nose, so maybe he'll figure it out. And they wouldn't see me without a referral. And I threw a hissy fit in the, in the reception. And so they said, okay, 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 we'll see you. They brought me in. And I showed him, I filled a Dixie cup with fluid. And I handed it to him, and he got all excited. And he goes, oh, that's CSF. That's CSF. So he, he immediately diagnosed it because he had not been told not, you know, not to pay attention to me, right? So I, it was just basically the breakthrough of getting somebody to actually to listen to what I had said, but I had gotten so much feedback about, oh, you just want attention. Oh, are you getting along with your boyfriend? Oh, blah, 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 blah. And it was very demeaning because I, had, I was very independent. You know, um, I was very self-sufficient even as a young person, you know, uh, <laughs> and kind of being told I couldn't handle things and, you know, and, and I would res that I was resorting to re I mean, who, what 18 year old wants to spend Friday night at a doctor's office, you know? <laughs> you know it didn't make any sense. So, um, and then I remember when, you know, even as when I was younger and I was 16 and I was told, and I was told that, you know, I was just um, doing too much exercise. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense either. And then they were like, well, you know, young women have to take care of themselves kind of thing. 
And I was like, what is what? You know, women have babies. Do you know how 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 difficult that is? You know? <laughs> so I just remember just feedback loop after feedback loop of being told. And then I was always being told, I remember from the age of 16 forward, many of the doctors I went to see to find out what was going on, they always began the sentence with women your age. So whether I was an adolescent, you know, in puberty or uh, a young woman in full reproductive, uh, you know, fertility or going through perimenopause, it was always a woman your age. That explained whatever it was I was going through. And I would always be, as soon as they said a woman your age, I was like, I'm out of here. Jen, I think you just sort of answered the other question too. Why it took so long for you to get a diagnosis. You were being aggressive, but because you were young and you were a female, doctors weren't giving you the time of day and they were telling you that there was nothing wrong or they were telling you that, you know, it's just the stress of everyday life. And you kept pushing, but doctors wouldn't even give you a chance until you finally walked into a doctor who didn't know any of your background and then diagnosed you with the, the seat. You know, Within minutes, diagnosed you based on examining a fluid coming out of your nose. So, I don't think no, that. to examine. Can you imagine right. walking around leaking CSF out of your face for eight months? Absolutely and not. I had a mama jama headache. So walk us through more. So now we're sort of we're sort of at to the point where you're almost thirty, but yet you're still going to go another twenty-two years before getting a diagnosis. And you mentioned that you sort of had some, you know good times and bad times and you get into remission and you get worse. So walk us through what other symptoms you had and what that 22 year period was like leading up to your diagnosis. Well, what happened, I would say like in my thirties, I, I started having, like I said, I had to really compensate for my um, energy lags where I would just crash. And so as I did in college where I would take a nap in the middle of the day, I couldn't do that, you know, cause I was working. I couldn't just go home to my dorm room or my shared house and nap. So I had a cot in my room and um, in my office. Uh, and um, I had, uh, I had um, chocolate covered coffee beans and I would set an alarm clock so I could just, I would just pass out literally for like 30 minutes or 20 minutes. And then I pop some chocolate covered coffee beans and then get up and go into the next thing. But I was also traveling a lot. And so, when I went to the doctor and I explained that I had a 70% 70 70 travel schedule, they just said, well, you're jet lagged. Um, and I said, I said, but I talked to other people about jet lag and they're not having what I have. And I felt basically like my head was full of can cotton candy and that my, my hearing, my eyesight, everything would get kind of muffled from time to time. Um, like, almost like I was like trying to work, you know, like neurologically, like muffling around me. Um, uh, and I just remember I had to be, sometimes I'd have to reread certain things. I'm a speed reader, but sometimes I'd have to go back and reread it a couple times. And then I, I speak multiple languages and I started losing words. And at first I thought I was just losing my Arabic because I wasn't using it as frequently as my French and my English, but then I realized I was losing words in all of my languages. I was doing a lot of word searching, and I remember compensating for that as well, you know, knowing, and I just thought that I was in a period of, of extreme, and I was working 52 weekends a year. I mean, I was working 36 weekends a year out of 52 weeks. I mean, I was working a very high uh, 
high energy, very demanding job, far more than eight, more than 80 hours a week, easy. You know, I was a senior technical advisor to the United Nations and covering 40 countries, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I know that I was really pushing it, but at the same time, I could not understand why I couldn't keep up with my guy colleagues, because I was the only woman, and they were older than me, and they used to party, you know what I mean? It was like, they seem to be able to take it all on, and I'm like, I'm, I'm struggling here. Anyway, and I remember negotiating with my boss because I was actually not supposed to travel that much as part of my, you know, scope of work. But because I was the only woman, they put me out there a lot to show that they were, you know, they had a woman on board, right? So, and then he said, oh, and, and we, want, um, we want you to go out. And he, and he would say also, oh, well, Jenna, you're single. I'm like, yeah, I'm always going to be single if I'm never anywhere, you know? <laughs> I said, I can't even have a house plant. You know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I want to please cut back my travel schedule so it's more manageable. And I, you know, have something, you know, going on. I can get a house plant. Anyway, um, he was a great guy, but he, you know, he wanted me out there a lot because I was the first woman who was to be a senior technical advisor. And um, so I just... Uh, I was struggling more and more to keep up with my work. And then he, he ended up leaving and the new person who came in, who was the acting executive secretary for the agency um, was not somebody I admired. Um, and so it was one thing to kind of try to meet uh, his expectations. And it was another thing to try to meet the expectations of this other person. So I basically said, if you don't, reduce my travel schedule as per my scope of work, I'm resigning. Cause I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it like that. So um, that's what I ended up doing. I ended up resigning. So Jenna, walk us through when you resigned, were you still in a position where you were physically able to work and travel, but you just were fed up or was this a result of just your health continuing to decline and you knew you couldn't do it anymore? I couldn't do it the way I was doing it. I knew that. Um, I had already contracted one of the, the, the most virulent form of, um, of malaria. And for example, I had been told I needed to stay back at least three months and they put me out after six weeks. So, so this is a form of malaria where it's, it's found in Mozambique and, and if you get it, if you don't get treatment within 48 hours, you die. And I had contracted it and um, it like knocked out half my red blood cells almost. I was like so anemic. So I was, I was very compromised when they sent me out again. But this, my, like I said, my previous boss had left. My new boss wouldn't, you know, acting, acting guy wasn't honoring anything like that. And um, I guess got so fed up that they would, you know, put me out, basically demand I go out there even though the doctors had said I should stay in for at least three months and build up my, um, you know, my, my blood cells and, and overall strength, um, that I just said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to, I, I hear I'm working on human rights and my human rights are being violated. <laughs> I'm being so <laughs> So Jenna, walk us through now what happened from the time you resigned from this position up until the point you got diagnosed when you were 52 years old. Okay, so one of the things I did was I was living in the New York area because that's where the United Nations is based. I was living in Sleepy Hollow 
And as you know, the New York area is quite expensive compared to other parts of the country. So I relocated to Florida where I knew that I could work as a consultant for so many days a week, a year and manage, you know, to, to live. So I could reduce my workload and live in a place and still have a good quality of life. And so I made a plan to relocate to Florida. At the time, my grandmother was still living here and um, basically work less and take care of myself more, which is what I did. So I, I refused basically to go back into full-time work. Did, I, I, just, I just didn't think it was worth it, you know? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was too too hard on me. And did you notice your health improved as a result of no longer working full-time and cutting back your hours? Well, it definitely helped. I mean, I just remember the first number of months that I, I moved, after I moved to Florida, I just slept all the time and I walked on the beach. That's all I did, sleep and walk, sleep and walk. Um, and then I kind of got better again. And then I started taking most of my assignments for six to eight weeks. And again, they're all in very challenging environments, you know, very rudimentary infrastructure. I'm not in the capital. I might come into the capital to brief and debrief, but I'm basically out in these more uh, rural areas that need governance, infrastructure, delivery, basic services. So um, I would always be um, out in places eating various things that were there and exposed to a lot of microbes and parasites and all of these things. And so um, because of my seniority, I was a team leader. And so I could always organize the team and my time frame and the program to accommodate my need to rest and take care of myself, right? So I could meet with my team early in the morning, we could work through the day, I could take a break and then come back and meet with them again and schedule everything like that. Um, so I could manage to work. And then what, what happened over time was that, you know, let's say I went on a six week assignment, I would come home and sleep for a week. Then I would go, then, you know, later as, as it progressed, it got to the point where if I went on a six week assignment, I would have to sleep for six weeks. So your health was declining, but you were requiring more and more rest, which you now are able to do because of your decreased workload, it sounds like. Right. But so, I mean, it was, I was either, I was either, uh, and I remember just having to, and I would have to do a lot of things in order to get through that work day while I was working. And I, and I would basically know that when I got back, I would be in complete crash mode. Kind of getting back into the situation I had been when I was working full time at UN as a senior advisor where I had no life. And Jenny, you had to know that this, this wasn't normal and it was getting worse. So how does this decline in your health lead up to your Lyme diagnosis? Well, I, you know, I, I started to go, I was going to various doctors and again, I was told, oh, this is perimenopause. I was like, really? I said, how come, I said, if, if, if all billions of women were feeling like this, we would have no civilization. <laughs> So once again, it was blamed on your gender. And I just find that unbelievable that they continue to just find excuse after excuse after excuse instead of figuring out what's really wrong with you. Many interesting things. You know, I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, goes to church and I have spiritual beliefs. But I remember being asked if I believed in God, you know, like that had something to do with it. Um, I remember, you know, being told it was perimenopause. I remember being told that women your age often struggle with where they are in their life and I was like what <laughs> and these were not psychologists or psychiatrists these were just you know GPs and 
neurologist saying things, you know, just kind of out of there. I was starting to have a lot of ticks and tremors and fasciculations. I was starting to have a lot of blurry vision that would come and go. I started developing gastric issues. Um, my hair started falling out. Um, I remember just having like uh, very uneven emotions. That's why they thought it was perimenopause. You know, my uh, emotional balance was going very. I remember there were some days I said I can't go out in public. I'm gonna. I'm not going out in public because I feel emotionally very unstable. I'm not even gonna go. I would remember like going to a grocery store to buy something, and the person in front of me would be talking to their friend saying, my dog died, and I would burst into tears uncontrollably. But it wasn't hormonal. I mean, this was my, my brain was severely inflamed at this time. I finally started to get some uh, diagnoses, and they said that, you know, I had multifocal uh, bright spots in my brain, and so I probably had MS, and I probably had lupus. And did you, at the time, accept these misdiagnoses? What was your position when you were seeing all these doctors? I mean, clearly, you probably didn't believe any of these. You know, it's, it's you, it's premenopausal. But did you believe the, the MS diagnosis or anything like that? Well, you know, um, oh, and I also got uh, diagnosed with four different autoimmune diseases. So I just remember... Um, trying to get the clarity from the doctors, like, why do you have this? Because, you know, MS and lupus are not, there's no, like, clear way to diagnose that. These are clinical diagnoses. You know, there's, like, no blood test for lupus. There's a blood test that indicates you may have it. There's, you know, like, you may have rheumatoid arthritis, you may have lupus, you may have MS, but these are clinical diagnoses. There's nothing specific that says definitely you have this. And so um, one of my undergraduate degrees is in science and I'm actually very science minded and I love science. And so um, I would read everything I could about the disease that they told me I probably had and it didn't fit what I was experiencing. So I, um, I said, you know, I disagree. <laughs> and I had no trouble disagreeing because I had already disagreed with them you know, many times with like my head injury and my back injury. So <laughs> I just said I disagree. And I just kept searching for answers um, to see what, what could be wrong with me. So very eager to know how, after all of these misdiagnoses and all of this, this, this horrible, horrible doctor-patient experiences you had to go through, how did you finally think about Lyme disease and how did that fit into the picture? Well, it's very interesting. So in the 80s, I was in Vermont in graduate school, and um, I knew about Lyme disease then. I've known about Lyme disease since the 80s, but I knew it as I knew it, the CDC description of it, that you have a bullseye rash. And I knew people who had Lyme disease, and I knew some people who were very sick with it. And I remember, because uh, I was an avid hiker and everything, and up in the Green Mountains all the time, and you know, swimming in the rivers and you know, going to tall grasses to swim into the rivers and everything like that. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm so lucky I've never gotten Lyme disease because I've never had a bullseye rash. So um, what happened is a, a childhood friend of mine almost died and we got a call from her mother saying she might not be with us much longer. And I went to visit her. She was in terrible shape. She had been a, a you know, very fit, 
brilliant young woman, and she was shriveled, you know, just very emaciated and on an IV. And, um, you know, I, she explaining to me what was going on. Um, and then she said it might be related to Lyme disease. And I just remember thinking about that. Um, and then we weren't living in the same state or anything, but we were in touch on and off. And then um, as things got worse with me and my husband's health was also declining. And as I mentioned, he's from Old Lyme, Connecticut. He was, con he was bitten by ticks and contracted it probably at the age of 17. Um, and it was so interesting. We got married and if within a year of our marriage, we both just started going way down. You know? <laughs> like, it's your fault. No, it's your fault, you know? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just want to just want to ask a question about that. So your your husband grew up in Lyme, Connecticut. Yeah. He was he was bit probably around seventeen. He Lyme, Connecticut is where Lyme was basically found and discovered, right? And yet yeah. he, neither he nor you thought about Lyme disease for I mean over thirty years until you got a diagnosis, right? Well, because I thought you had to have a bullseye rash. That was the misinformation that I believed. You know, when, when you travel internationally, I mean, I use the CDC website regularly as an international traveler. I go there to see what diseases do I have to watch out for in this country, what preventatives do I need to take, what, sh you know, shots, et cetera, you know, all those things that you do to prepare for international travel and particularly into developing countries. So I always considered CDC to be a trusted uh, website and source of information. And when they describe Lyme as having a bullseye rash, I assumed that's what you needed to have in order to to show a symptom for, uh, to have Lyme disease. And so no, neither of us looked at what happened though, is like my health was declining so much and I called my friend, I thought about my friend Shireen and I called her and I explained everything and she said, you may, you may well have Lyme disease. And she's the one who told me to get tested and not to bother with the standard tests. So your story is not very uncommon where you thought of Lyme because of a friend or a family member or research, and you're the reason you ultimately get diagnosed, which is just very unfortunate in today's world with so many people that have Lyme disease. So when you, when you spoke to your friend and she recommended you get tested for Lyme, what were your next steps? Did you go to a doctor? Did you f seek an LLMD? You know, what, did you research it first? How did you proceed at that point? Well, we had a neighbor who was a doctor who was willing to do the blood draw and centrifuge, centrifuge the blood that needed to be done and practice especially to be sent to Igenix. So he was willing to do that and he got the test results. And he immediately said, I'm only going to give you 21 days of antibiotics. And that's it. He goes, because he, you know, and he literally made it clear to us that this was not an illness he wanted to be involved with because people were losing their licenses and being attacked for being involved with it. And he was, you know, close to retirement. And so he said, that's it, 21 days of antibiotics, of doxycycline. But Jenna, did he caution you that that might not be enough but, and say that I can't help you beyond that? Or did he just say 21 days and you're going to be cured? No, he didn't say 21 days, you're going to be cured. He said, this is all I can do for you. So at that point, did you start to look for another doctor who would be willing to treat you more long-term in the way that you felt would be better for you to heal? Absolutely. Because by this time, you know, I had started reading. As soon as my friend told me to get tested, I started reading everything I could. And this person who told me to get tested, she was a medical professional at Johns Hopkins who almost died from Lyme disease. 
she told me um, to get the test there, and then and then you know she started to talk around the the issues of getting treatment, et cetera. And I just want to say that you know she, like a lot of people who've been through this, was very traumatized by it as well. So she it was almost like a cat and mouse situation trying to get the information from her because it it was pulling up a lot of trauma for her to even discuss part of it. But she gave gave me enough information and then I started doing all the research and I by luck, you know, I'm a, I do a lot of research on the, on the computer and um, Joe Boroscano's guide for treatment came up and it, I downloaded it and then I, I got a couple other articles and then I went and spoke to uh, a nurse practitioner who was at the rural, hot, rural um, medical clinic. I was, we were up in the mountains. We'd had to leave Florida because it was too, we couldn't ha handle the heat. And my husband had developed such severe sound sensitivity that we couldn't live in a concrete block house. So we had moved up into the mountains, into a, into a home that was built into the mountains, surrounded by clay. And he basically was living in that floor that was at the bottom built into the clay um, because of sound sensitivity. So he was, he was like, I called him the mushroom man, you know? <laughs> he, was, he was down there and I was up here and I was walking around wearing my sunglasses again, you know, and he was down there with headphones on <laughs> trying to keep all the noise out. Anyway, <laughs> we both got diagnosed uh, with Igenix. Um, he tested positive on the bands, all the bands for CDC requirements. I did not, but I tested positive on the PCR, um, very high levels on PCR. Um, and then what happened, so I went to a rural, um, uh, we had a rural health clinic there. You know, these are all over the country, they're federally subsidized. And there was a nurse practitioner that I, you know, had seen me going downhill. You know, she witnessed me going downhill. And she was the one who, you know, put me in touch with people who said I probably had multiple sclerosis. No, not multiple, lupus, lupus. That was the lupus diagnosis. And I'm, Believe it or not, there's a lot of lupus around there. <laughs> Farming community, agriculture, you know, hunting, you know. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> a lot of lupus. Anyway, um, but I, I went to her with the Boroscano's guide and a couple of articles about persistent infection. And I said, you know, would you please consider treating uh, my husband and I long term? long-term antibiotics and she she looked at me and she told me that she had a niece that almost died from this and she was willing to treat us on extended antibiotics um, of course these were oral and she did not code it as Lyme disease so in order to preserve her license and not be at risk for with her medical career she had to code it differently to not get in trouble to give you the treatment you needed to recover that's correct. And it sounds like you did some research on the Buna protocol as well. So in addition to the oral antibiotics, I believe that you were on doxycycline, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I knew that oral doxycycline from everything I read would not be enough to knock this back. So did you then- We both had had it for such a long time. I knew that we needed more to do, to do this, you know? 
Um, so I, I was hoping, and I had, I had, I'm very sensitive to antibiotics anyway, and um, so um, I couldn't tolerate additional antibiotics really at that time at all. So I added the Booner protocol to my therapy. My husband did not. I encouraged him to, but he did not. And I was just going to say at this time, my health was much worse than his was, um, but I got much better than he did. So, Jenna, do you believe you got better because you did the Buner herbal protocol in addition to the antibiotics and your husband did not? I think I got better for a couple reasons. One, I fully accepted the fact that I had Lyme disease. My husband was fighting that diagnosis for a long time. He did not want to believe it. So I embraced every measure possible to regain my health. And in the beginning of taking the antibiotics and the herbal protocol, did you see immediate relief or did you feel better before you got, I'm sorry, did you feel worse before you got better and experienced a Herxheimer reaction? Well, that's very interesting. I never knew what a Herxheimer reaction was until I did disulfiram later. Um, but at the time, was I Herxing? I don't know, because I was so sick. <laughs> I was so sick. <laughs> that makes complete sense, but... You know, I, had, I mean, if somebody said, you know, you know, are you Herxing? And they would describe symptoms, I'm like, well, I have that all the time, you know? So, I mean, I had neurological, I had uh, joint, my, both my knees were very inflated, you know, swollen. I had classic Lyme knees, classic. I remember going to a doctor in Florida with these classic Lyme knees and being told I, and they were like, what do you do for exercise? I said, well, I walk on the beach every day for about an hour to an hour and a half. And then she was like, stop walking. <laughs> I was like, but wait a minute. Are you telling me that exercise causes this? She's like, well, probably. I'm like, then I said, then Olympic Olympians would look like a bunch of grapes, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. So, Jenna, just 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 to recap this though, you <laughs> after six months of taking doxycycline and Juno's herbal protocol, your health improved significantly, but you didn't reach long-term remission, right? So, about six years later, you mentioned you then did disulfiram. Is that correct? Well. So I continued, I did the Booner protocol and the doxycycline together for six months. I continued the Booner protocol for an additional uh, two and a half years, um, maybe even longer. Yeah, longer. I did, I did the Booner call, protocol, I think, for uh, much longer, yeah, um, for about five years, I think. Um, but I would, I would kind of, if I started to feel symptomatic, I would put it onto a therapeutic dose. And then if I was kind of asymptomatic, I would, or less symptomatic, you know, functional, then I would go down to a maintenance dose. So I kind of went up and down with that. Um, uh, and meanwhile, my husband's health severely declined. And he was looking at, you know, going on disability. Um, and that's why we ended up doing the disulfone treatment. I was kind of desperate to find something that might work for him. And you did this together. So because your husband's health was so bad. You... I, I, I am uh, firmly of the belief that when, if you've had it for decades untreated and undiagnosed, it's pretty much entrenched in your body. And that, you know, I go into remission, but I haven't necessarily eradicated it. Disulfiram is a very, very 
commonly discussed topic today. So can you walk us through what it was like when you first started taking the disulfiram, how long you were on it, and really ultimately did it work for you? Sure. So um, Ken Legner was the first person to publish his findings on disulfiram. And I am a friend of Ken Legner's. Uh, we met through uh, the ad hoc committee that I established to change the ICD-11 codes. So he was one of the first people who came into that committee and helped to work with me on, on that project. And he was very excited about this treatment he was doing and he shared some information with me. And so I was, my husband and I were part of the first earliest group of patients to go on disulfiram. And I did a review of it and I you know, found that fairly low risk, well-tolerated drug, around for 70 years, nothing to lose, right, in this case, particularly because my husband was to the point where he was, you know, going into disability, you know, level of functioning, you know, un unable to do anything, and, and just, and it had been going on for a couple of years, which was, you know, very hard to see him in that situation, and, 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 and not, and he had been on multiple treatments of antibiotics, um, we both also had probably, both had Bartonella and Babesia. Um, he had a lot of problems with Babesia as well. Bartonella, you could still see Stria coming up on and off on his body. So he wasn't really clearing things. Like I said, I was in functional remission, but I would have kind of ups and downs a bit and, you know, where I would boost my protocol, be more careful with, with my health habits or, you know, sleep. I would just rest. You know, I'd have to rest at those times and then kind of regain. But anyway, so um, there was a doctor in California who was, who was taking on early patients with disulfiram. And so we flew out there to be treated with disulfiram. Now we were, like I said, in the first very early group of people to take the treatment. And so now we know a lot more about this treatment protocol and the various combinations and how it can be used and how it can be used effectively. For example, some people are now on low doses over a long period of time. When we got into this uh, uh, treatment, we were all uh, trying to get up to a high dose for a period of uh, 12 weeks, eight to 12 weeks. My husband tolerated it very well and it completely revolutionized his health. He came out of it completely, I mean, he's kayaking, he's hiking, he's working full time. His life is completely turned around, completely turned around. I had severe herxing. Now I knew what herxing was. <laughs> oh, that's a herx. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but what was interesting was that I had so much neurological herxing. And so I had seizures, uh, partial seizures, uh, six tremors, uh, my dysautonomia, my um, uh, POTS, all of the autonomic nervous system, everything. And I just remember feeling the, as I was taking it, it moving through my body. I mean, I could feel it you know, running through my tendons and ligaments. So, you know, but the, the neurological stuff was really uh, powerful and, um, you know, not very pleasant. I ended up having a major seizure at one point. Um, but, but the point being is that, um, you know, now we know that I probably should not have gone to such a high dose. I probably should have been on a lower dose. At the same time, I still did come through it with improved health. And for me, it was so important that I did that treatment because I clearly had deep-seated infection in my neurological system, clearly. You know, I'd already shown to have 
a lot of lesions in my brain prior on an MRI, right? <laughs> so I already had evidence of, of infection in my brain and central nervous system, but this disulfum, I think, went very deep into that. You know, it's a very small molecule, so it gets into the, penetrates into the central, goes through the blood-brain blood barrier and gets into, you know, working all that. So um, we both did, uh, you know, the treatment. Um, if I ever felt, you know, like I was going down again, I would do it again. I would just do it at a lower dose. My husband, like I said, has totally changed his life. Totally changed his life. I mean, he was so eviscerated by this by the time he got off the all from. Jennifer, so you. I, I know that not everyone can tolerate it, and I'm not saying it's the cure, but I think it does. It's a great tool. Jennifer, for you, you mentioned that it, you had severe herxing and then you got better. And then if you had a little flare up, you would go back on a little bit of disulfiram. But now that was within the last year, about a year ago. How are you feeling today? How would you assess your health today? No, I would basically, it, it, it helped it improve my health, definitely improve my health. And my husband is basically very improved, extremely improved. I'm so not, I'm not, the only thing I'm doing right now is, um, you know, basic supplements not any particular treatment. So Jenna, let's talk about how your Lyme journey has been transformative for you professionally, because you've become very well known for the changes you've been making in the Lyme community. And I'd like you to share with our listeners how you and your experience with Lyme disease has taken you through this transformational experience. Well, so here I am, um, by the time I left my position at the UN, I had already worked for uh, almost 20 years in international human rights, um, basically providing services to the most marginalized people in the world. And, you know, so you have a sense of your own power and you feel, um, capable of making change. Um, you know, not, not everything improves, but I could see improvements in various places over the many years I've been working. And then as I con continued as a consultant for the next, uh, you know, 15 years, I also saw, you know, I was able to keep in touch and see improvements in various places because of these, um, these efforts, not my efforts, but joint efforts, everyone's efforts to help improve things. Um, and then, so, you know, at the same time, I'm living this in this cognitive dissonance where I am myself a marginalized person. So it's very obvious to me that I'm being marginalized. And at the same time, I'm not really sure how to get through that marginalization because I don't know what exactly is wrong. Why am I being marginalized? And then when I get the Lyme diagnosis, and I start reading all about Lyme, the politics, the corruption, the, <laughs> I go, this is human rights abuse on a global scale with corruption on a global scale. And this is exactly the kind of work that I've been doing internationally on other areas of service, you know, and, and uh, you know, education, health, uh, and ability to make a living, uh, ability to assemble, all these things govern. Uh, and so I recognize that I am actually part of this whole paradigm of extreme corruption and, and human rights abuse that's being perpetuated through these marginal, you know, marginalizing this, this global patient group. And so, um, 
what it made me realize was that I probably had specific skills that I could apply to this conundrum. There could be something I might be able to do given that I have a global understanding of what's going on. And I so Jenna, talk to, us, talk to us about the marginalization and why you believed you and patients like you are being marginalized. Okay. Well, I actually, I wrote a book about it. It's called Slime, <laughs> which describes the marginalization. And it's very well documented, actually, in the United States that the, that the um, insurance agencies decided in the early 90s to no longer uh, uh, support, uh, ensure treatment for chronic Lyme. Prior to that, people got treated. And that is well documented in the book by um, Pamela Weintraub, Pure Unknown. So we have the documentation that, you know, we moved to an HMO system and um, basically insurers started to call the shots on what they would treat and what they wouldn't treat and how they would cap illnesses you know, et cetera. Lyme was one of the diseases that they decided to not treat in the chronic form because it was costly. So in, in the US system, which is driving the global Lyme policies, um, basically it was a insur powerful insurance industry that decided not, no longer to cover it, the treatment. So they had to get people to were willing to say there was no such thing as chronic Lyme. And that's where we get the corruption and with the, within the IDSA and the CDC and the NIH to basically deny that this illness is persistent, debilitating, disabling, and can cause death. So, so that's, that's, the, that's specifically the situation in the United States. On the flip side, though, there were practitioners also recognizing, particularly in the Lyme endemic areas, that if you gave uh, a Lyme patient, particularly a chronic Lyme patient, an alternate, um, sorry, an alternate, um, uh, an alternative diagnosis, and particularly if it's a chronic diagnosis like lupus or multiple sclerosis or any number of autoimmune diseases or rheumatoid arthritis, then that patient could actually become a great profit center for pharmaceutical industries. Because now you have a patient who is typically put on highly expensive patented drugs for the rest of their life. So this is a setup that is benefiting a lot of different actors. It's not like anybody masterminded it. It's just that things started to be put in place and various predatory actors started to recognize how they could benefit from the situation. Okay. So the, so the medical system incentivizes this behavior. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I mean, right now, I mean, you know, the, listen, the Special Rapporteur for Health Human Rights, Danius Puras, put out a, a publication uh, on the state of the, on the global health system and said, basically, it is the most corrupt sector in the world. And you've seen this through your entire life. Uh, you were diagnosed with having um, uh, danced for too many hours. You were diagnosed with having blue eyes, jet lag. <laughs> working too many hours, premenopausal, not believing in God, and then ultimately MS and lupus because we have- Not being a woman. Uh, uh, not being a woman. So you were- you, <laughs> You're a woman. You, you had a whole host of, of, of misdiagnoses or excuses for not diagnosing you. And as a consequence, you were sick for decades before you were properly diagnosed and properly treated. 
And, yeah. and this, this pattern is repeating itself hundreds of thousands of times in the US per year because the medical system incentivizes both insurance companies and doctors to properly, uh, not to properly diagnose people with Lyme disease. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't see it as, I think, like I said, I think it started out with insurance companies wanting to deny it. And then, and then on the flip side, people recognizing, oh, well, we, these people are still very sick, but if we can move them into another diagnosis, we can actually make money off of them. So, you know, it's very interesting because on the one hand, you know, insurance companies are covering for some of these pain, some of these treatments, right? But when you look at how embedded and, and embedded insurance and pharma is, there's a lot of deals going on all the time with what will be covered, what won't be covered, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, and let's... Investments, et cetera. You know, like for example, the, the up-to-date, which is a drop-down system for getting medical diagnosis. You go to a doctor's office and you give them symptoms. Oftentimes they go to up-to-date, up-to-date drops down and looks and points in the symptom and boom. They get like a diagnosis, you might have this, you might have that. Up-to-date is tied to a mother, uh, it's a subsidiary of a, a major corporation that is involved with all kinds of investments for pharmaceutical industries and medical devices and other types of investments. So these two are feeding off of each other very clearly in terms of what's gonna get funded, what isn't going to get funded, What's going to get diagnosed? What isn't going to get diagnosed? What medications are going to be pushed? What's are, what you know, uh, et cetera? And then, of course, our whole model in the United States, we used to be self-sufficient in the production of antibiotics and other key drugs, and all those have been outsourced because of money. So talk to us about the changes you've now made now that you've identified and written about this very corrupt system that's causing people to remain sick. Sure. I just want to mention also outside the context of the United States, and if you are already on Medicaid and Medicare and you get diagnosed with Lyme, in those cases, because it's now the government system or a national health system in another country that's paying for your treatment or not paying for your treatment, in those cases, typically, instead of putting you into a diagnosis of a chronic illness that costs, has costly expenses, um, hey, that has costs involved um, with uh, a treatment like lupus or, or uh, MS, uh, in those cases, they often will diagnose you as simply psychosomatic and put you sim on, on merely palliative care. And palliative care, of course, is the kind of limited treatment you give to somebody who is dying. So I'm just telling you that's what's being done in, in many of the Scandinavian countries, in Holland, in uh, France, you know, all of these countries that have national health systems, Canada, they basically say it's psychosomatic and they will not give you any therapies. Here, because of money being made off of pharma for expensive patents, and they tend to put you into these categories that are generating income for, for pharma. So I'm just saying there's like two, there's a couple different avenues on how this is played out depending on the context of, of the uh, cost, who's, who, who's it gonna cost? So, Jenna, you, you've identified a solution, or at least a partial solution to these challenges. So can you talk to us about the solutions you've identified and the steps you've taken to try to implement those solutions? Sure. Let's open up this book. 
So, um, you know, because I work for the United Nations, I'm very familiar with the UN agencies, and one of them, which is a very major agency, is uh, the. Sorry. is the World Health Organization. And many people do not know that um, the World Health Organization is actually comprised of all the nations in the world, uh, 194, now we're 193 because of the US has left the World Health Organization. But basically all the major, uh, almost all the countries in the world are member states of the World Health Organization. And they have what they call International Classification of Diseases Codes. And these codes are used by all the countries in the world. For example, if you go to a doctor in Maine or you go to a doctor in Shanghai, they are using the same coding system for disease. And the reason this was done was because there was always a concern that there may be pandemics and that there had to be an, an ability to globally coordinate and respond to pandemics or other kinds of disease outbreaks. Um, so this was started many, many, back in the 40s, the system started to begin and then it got more developed. Um, and so we've had multiple iterations of what's called the ICD codes, International Classification of Diseases Codes. And about every 10 years, they would update them with the latest medical information so that those diseases, that understanding could be represented in the codes. So people don't realize that these codes are used globally. Um, but I'll give you an example. They are also very politicized. So Lyme disease and um, Ebola were both discovered around the same time. And Lyme disease was actually given its own code. But Ebola was never given a code, a specific code. It was under a general code for hemorrhagic fever until 2016 when it became a global threat. And then when Ebola became a global threat, they actually assigned a specific code for Ebola so that any medical person and scientist in the world could go to that code information and find out what the symptoms of Ebola are and, and locate how to deal with it and treat it. So it's kind of a globalized medical inventory dictionary information system for all practitioners, all scientists across the globe to be able to access, regardless of the wealth or poverty of that nation. So in 2016, after Ebola became a threat to wealthy industrialized nations, <laughs> it got a medical code. For 30 years, it had no medical code. It was just something that happened in those poor African countries, you know? So there was no reason to mobilize and have a code for Ebola. Now, Lyme disease was given a code back in the 90s. It made it, made it into the World Health Organization when it took, a it took time, you know, it took time, it took about 15, 20 years to get medical codes, you know, but it was given codes in the 90s and they have not changed since. So for uh, more than 25 years, the description for Lyme was limited to arthritis, meningitis, and polyneuropathy. Now, that's already interesting because the World Health Organization recognized polyneuropathy from Lyme disease, but very few doctors will recognize it. Even though there was a global consensus that this is a medically, scientifically valid outcome of Lyme disease. 
So what happens is when you get a disease or a condition, it has a code and then it has subcodes that describe various complications from that disease. All right. And some of these diseases are very well elaborated and some of them are not very well elaborated. And that's where the politics comes in. That's also where science comes in. Sometimes they just don't have enough evidence to say, yes, specifically, this is an outcome of this disease. But in other cases, they have the science, but they're not gonna put it into a code for various reasons, oftentimes political, economic. Now, so, when, you, when you say political, describe why the World Health Organization would not allow science-based evidence to trigger a change in code. Because the World Health Organization is funded by nations, nation states. It's de dependent upon donations from various governments and that, that can come with leverage. So if a particular interest group were to take control of the policy making decisions of the wealthiest nations who are donating to the World Health Organization, World Health Organization would then be controlled by the lobbyists who are controlling those nation states. And it goes further than that. Um, just as our, um, just as the Centers for Disease Control has been quite corrupted and the NIH has been quite corrupted by pharmaceutical interests, which is very well documented, by the way, um, by uh, numerous scholars, um, FDA as well, Food and Drug Administration. I'm not saying that everyone's corrupt, and I'm not saying the entire institution is corrupt, but I'm saying it has been, there is corruption in it. There is corruption in there. And there's certainly very clear pockets of corruption in certain areas of these institutions. So what happens is, wait, so the World Health Organization, not only does it depend on funding from multiple nations, from governments, but also people get seconded. In other words, they get a, given a temporary post at the World Health Organization to represent the issues, the, the interests of that particular country. So we have people from the CDC or the NIH or whatever over there sitting at the World Health Organization as officials in the World Health Organization. So the corruption of the NIH and the CDC gets exported to the world by virtue of the officials from those positions serving on the World Health Organization. Well, that, that is part of the way in which the corruption is spread regarding Lyme disease. The other part is that almost every official at the CDC that is involved with Lyme disease is a member of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. And so that's another way in which the um, fraudulent science around Lyme disease has been globalized because the IDSA has a lot of funding <laughs> from various groups, including, including government, and they form partnerships, research partnerships with multiple nations, multiple other medical societies, so they have a lot of influence as well. Um, so it's two-tiered. It's not, it's the private, that's a private sector, non, you know, private sector group going forward and promoting certain things that are tied to insurance interests and pharmaceutical interests. And then you have the government, which is also tying into various institutions. So because of your Lyme disease journey, you've now been able to identify all of these challenges that we are universally facing through the corruption of both American institutions and now world health organizations. How have you been able to now affect change so that that corruption does not continue to violate the human rights of um, people around the world? Okay, so what happened is when I, when I 
I, I, I thought to myself, why, you know, what can I do to help move this agenda? And I said, well, what I could probably do is to try to change the codes. And in 2012, the World Health Organization was severely criticized for lack of transparency. And so they had to put in place a number of practices to open up their internal debates on how decisions were made. And one of these areas was the development of the ICD codes, because there was a lot of criticism, not only on ICD codes, how they were developed, because of politicizing of codes, you know, but other areas of the World Health Organization. They needed to become more transparent and accountable to the globe in general. Okay. Um, so they opened up the process to change the ICD codes, which meant that anybody could register as a stakeholder and come into the process and start sharing and debating and dialoguing on how to change and improve certain codes in any medical condition. And I was talking to Ken Legner at a conference and he had mentioned how frustrating it was that these medical codes were so limited when it came to Lyme disease. And that's when I realized, oh, well, we can change those. This is, a, this is a procedural thing that we can engage in and change the codes. So what we did was, um, I, I, I talking to Ken, and then he helped me to connect with many other people, and we formed an international committee uh, that represents scientists and medical professionals, human rights uh, lawyers, uh, um, and, and even veterinarians for zoology diseases, genetic diseases rather, and we have representation from Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Northern Europe, Canada, United States, South America, the Pacific Rim, uh, and Africa, okay? So we quickly cobbled together an international organization, um, all completely voluntary uh, group, um, and we pulled together research showing the evidence of persistent infection, congenital Lyme, multiple disabling uh, and potentially fatal complications from Lyme disease. But in addition to providing the medical and scientific information that was needed to change the codes, I knew that that would not be enough because that's been provided many times and it's routinely ignored. So what I did was I took that information and I framed it into a human rights and corruption rubric on how to present it. And showing by denying the science, it led to the violation of 11 major human rights across the globe and multiple treaties across the globe, multiple signed treaties, signatories of all these different nations were being violated because of this fraudulent science. And we detailed in, in detail all the corruption, much of the corruption revolving and how the corruption was implemented involving the science. And we put together two major reports um, that went to two different special rapporteurs and was shared with both rapporteurs, but they were the first one was for the Special Rapporteur uh, for Health Human Rights, which is the highest attainable standard of, of, life, of uh, quality of life that one can have. And then the other one was for the Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights defenders. And that's the human rights defenders is basically people who are defending the rights of other people, such as the doctors who are defending our rights to treatment options, the mothers and, and fathers who are defending the rights of their children's right to care and treatment. Those are human rights defenders. Um, the, the lawyers who are out fighting cases, um, the advocates. So anyone who's trying to protect a marginalized group um, goes into record as a human rights defender. And so basically we put these two major reports into record at the United Nations and also had meetings with the two different special rapporteurs 
and submitted the reports to the World Health Organization and participated in the online beta analysis thing going on for all the ICD codes, submitting example after example after example of all the science and medicine. But again, like I said, just the science and medicine alone would not work because they can ignore it. But by tying it to the human rights and making it an issue at that level, then we could put some pressure to bear on the system to at least pay attention to this information coming forward. So um, how, did, how, did that, how did that go for you? Once you were able to make the connection between the science and human rights, what was the response? Okay, well, I was, I'm just gonna just backtrack a little bit. Okay. So the, every country that involves itself in the ICD codes has its own ICD code process. For example, the US has one. Once or twice a year they meet and you can submit information and things you'd like to see change in the ICD-11 or the okay. ICD codes. Okay. It's completely non-transparent. You can submit information. There's no requirement that they even respond to say that they received it. There's no, no uh, 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 recognition that it was even submitted and there's no need for them to even put it into record that anything was received and there's no need for them to publicize what they're going to be discussing as even possible changes in the ICD codes. So it's a completely sham process. Or it's, 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 certainly, it's certainly one that's cloaked in secrecy, even if it's not sham, right? I mean, it, it's- well, I would say it's sham in that it's, it's because it's supposed to be an open stakeholder process. So it's, it's, it's a theater. It's, you know, they'll hold a meeting. You could go to the meeting, but they might not even discuss anything that you brought up. And they're not obligated to do it. And they're not obligated to tell you what they will discuss. So now, did you submit your findings or your organization's findings to the entities that are set up in the various countries to make recommendations for changes to the ICD codes? No, I went directly to headquarters. I said, this other process is complete bullshit. <laughs> I, I'm, going right to, I'm going right to the top. So that's why I... I went, we went directly to the top of the system. We went directly to the highest, um, you know, representatives at, at the Office of, of Human Rights. We, 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 we went directly into communication with the director and the executive director um, of, of uh, the World Health Organization. You know, I refused to get caught up in any of these baloney processes at the lower level because I knew that they were just going to shunt you out. Right. Well, because they were a black box. So you, you went above the black boxes in both the U.S. and around the world, and you went directly to the source. Yeah. So yeah. now tell us, yeah. was the source receptive to your reports and were changes ultimately made? And were those changes what you wanted them to be? Yes, we, we, we had quite a bit of success. So as I had mentioned, in, 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 and the reason we had some success, I believe, is because it was a transparent process. If they rejected something, they had to give a reason why they rejected it. It, had to, it was all on public record. So unlike, unlike these other systems where no, there was no requirement for any transparency, this was a completely open process. So if I submitted something, they said reject it, then I could come back and say, why are you rejecting it? Because they have to give a reason why they're rejecting it. You know, so, right. so, so, that, so anyway, so this was, and anybody in the world could see that who was registered on the stakeholder platform. So in addition to making noise with the reports and meeting with the special rapporteurs and, and 
talking to the, the heads of the WHO and the uh, deputies, we, we went through all the very, you know, nuts and bolts and procedural things to get it into the system. Okay. And we had teams of graduate students and scientists entering all this information onto the codes. And then, so what happened is the result is that we went from having three, you know, Lyme disease and then three codes for arthritis, meningitis, and polyneuropathy to Lyme disease and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 new codes. So the three codes that were initially adopted in the 1990s were amended so that we now have 18 codes currently. Uh, well, actually, one, two, Well, besides Lyme disease, we had we had 16 codes, and now we have 15. Okay. Yeah. One week to later. Okay. So now share with us what you believe the net impact the changing in the coding has had on treatment options available to both physicians and to patients. It's a huge difference. First of all, it's validated the science of a, a number of potentially fatal complications from Lyme disease. We now have official code for Lyme carditis, which means you can get easily. It means that if you know, if you have, if before, if you had Lyme carditis, you could go and there was no code for it and the person wasn't familiar with Lyme, they wouldn't even know to look for it. Lyme carditis meaning uh, Lyme disease attacking your heart. Yeah, infection of the heart, which kills people, by the way. It causes AV block. It can cause just general inflammation and, and destroy the heart, as you know. The story with Neil Spector, Dr. Neil Spector, who died uh, recently, and you know he had to have a heart transplant because Lyme infected his heart. So, um, so Lyme so, which is potentially fatal, is now recognized. It has a specific code. So, um, Jenna, let's stay with this now. Let's talk about what the practical import of having Lyme carditis as a as a, with an ICD code. What? What would be different for me if I were diagnosed with Lyme carditis uh, prior to the code change versus if I'm now diagnosed with Lyme carditis now that there is a, an ICD code for Lyme carditis? Prior to having this change in the codes, you would be given a general diagnosis of Lyme disease with no specificity. And you would be limited to um, the description that they had for acute Lyme and a limited course of antibiotics. And there would be no record keeping of the multiple cases of Lyme carditis there are in the country. Okay, so then as a, but as a practical matter for me as a patient, if I was suffering from Lyme carditis and my doctor did not have the capacity to diagnose me with Lyme carditis, then he or she or they would be limited to treating me with the protocols that were available for acute Lyme disease, and the doctor would no longer be permitted to offer me additional treatments. And more importantly, the insurance company wouldn't be required to pay for the, my treatments if I were to have that diagnosis, correct? Right. And so now what we have on the codes is we have Lyme neuroborreliosis, that's coded now. 
which as we know needs even recognized even by restrictive measures in multiple courses of antibiotics. We have Lyme carditis. We have op ophthalmic Lyme borreliosis, so all the complications of the eyes that happens with it and specific kinds of Lyme uh, things. We have dementia from Lyme disease recognized. We have demyelinating um, central nervous system demyelination due to Lyme borreliosis. That's a really big one because so many people get, get these complications that they've gone undiagnosed for a long time. So now there's actually a code for this, which basically allows you to now negotiate. Well, you know, but even more importantly, doctors are now given the flexibility of properly diagnosing us giving us the capacity to negotiate with our insurance companies so that we can be treated for these more chronic uh, illnesses, but also gives the doctor some protection if insurance companies are going to report the doctor for treating us for chronic Lyme disease. Because one of the biggest challenges that we've had as patients is that our doctors are, are fearful that they're going to suffer censure from the licensing agencies because the insurance companies are reporting them to, to the licensing entities. And most, I will tell you, Janet, and, and, and I'd like you to speak to this, um, most of our, our, um, our guests are afraid or not willing to share the names of their treating physicians, and that includes you. That's right. So the, this coding is a very, very important element of, of, of protecting uh, health human rights and I, I can't thank you enough for first identifying this challenge and then using your God-given gifts and your experience to, to make the changes that are necessary, or at least the early changes that are necessary, so that those patients who are suffering from chronic Lyme disease can have the proper healthy relationship that they should have with their doctors, the proper relationship that they have with their insurance company, and a more... Um, likely outcome of having their health human rights protected. Thank you. I was going to say, though, I mean, just, be, just because we have new codes doesn't mean there won't be pushback. Well, talk to us about that, because we do have to wrap this up. And, and, and yeah. I do want to let you know and our listeners that we're going to have to invite you back to have a conversation specifically about this topic. But just so that we can tie this up, Jenna, can you, can you just tell us where the pushback is coming from and what we can do to help you to prevent the pushback from preventing us from having the health human rights that we that every one of us are entitled to. Okay, there's a couple things. One, you know, this this was a, a procedure that I described in how to change the codes. The codes actually don't get adopted officially for another year plus. Okay, so it's a multi-year process, and then the codes get officially adopted. Meanwhile, I've been encouraging advocates across the world to use these new codes because they have been validated by the World Health Organization, which means all the science has been validated to educate doctors and scientists and public about Lyme disease. Because when you say that the World Health Organization, 193 countries have, have, have recognized these codes and the science here, that's a much different situation than saying one medical society in the United States has recognized this, okay? It's a much bigger uh, push for validation. And to give you an example, there is an advocate in Oregon who started her presentation to, to her state legislators by saying that these are the new medical codes and to the medical and scientific people there. 
And because it was coming from a global body, everybody just accepted it as such, okay? So that just takes you, you've already jumped that first hurdle of getting acceptance for these complications by basically presenting it as a validated multi-year stakeholder process representing all these nations and da 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 But we still have insurance companies who make money by denying care. And so whether it's Lyme disease or other, other illnesses, they do make money by denying care, you know? And so I can expect that there will be pushback from insurance companies to not want to recognize these complications, even though they have been encoded and, and recognized globally now, because we're still pushing, you know, we're still pushing back against, you know, people who make money off of denying care. So, um, you know, it, what, what it can do is as you said, it can protect the doctors where, for example, I don't give the names of my doctors because currently treatments that we've had in the past were not being coded through Lyme disease. That's how they got, that's how we were able to get care through our insurance system. Right. So the, so the doctors, the doctors had to either refuse to give us the treatment that we need or and, and be safe that way, or they had to diagnose us with something else so that we could receive the treatment that we needed, or in some cases they were incentivized to diagnose us with something else because they would be rewarded for that by big pharma and giving pe people treatment that was not going to help them to improve their condition. So, um, so, so the important thing is that people start talking about these codes and, and speaking to them speaking to the medical people, speaking to the scientists. Uh, you know, I tried to get this information represented at the Federal Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, and they've completely ignored it. Um, you know, some of the major advocacy groups in Europe have, been, have taken this on and they're using it to use for their advocacy work. I have not seen it adopted here in the United States by the major advocacy groups. They're kind of ignoring this major breakthrough. Um, and I'm just saying it's very important information because it's validated science now, you know, and we could start basically demanding recognition of, of policy changes prior to the adoption of the codes because the science has been validated. <laughs> so, Jenna, to tie up today's podcast, and again, I, we are going to invite you back and we're going to, going to need to have a much longer conversation about this particular topic and coding, but I'm going to, I'm going to walk you back to to from the macro to now the micro sure. and if god forbid your husband came walking in to see you immediately after you finished this podcast and he showed you that he had a tick biting him on his leg what would you recommend that he do so that he would not lose his current state of remission and go back into suffering from the challenges that he had faced with chronic lyme disease immediately put him on a course of antibiotics immediately and is there anything else that you'd recommend that he do with regard to the removal of the tick, the testing well, of the tick, has, or anything else? Proper tick removers so that the tick is lifted off the body as opposed to squeezing the tick and pulling it. We have proper tick removers so that we're not going to get, you know, more infection from hopefully from that tick bite. And we have an animal companion and uh, we use that if I ever find a tick on her. So, I mean, that's, we have that and I've distributed them to all my, you know, friends and family, but I would just say, you know, immediate, immediate treatment. Um, 
I know so many people who waited for test results and by that time the infection had disseminated. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Jenna Luce Thayer. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jenna and her tick disease journey, please purchase all of her books, but most importantly, her book entitled Slime, S-L-Y-M-E. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp interview with Jenna Luce Thayer, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer for the Tick Bite Blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes. This is an effort that we would love to improve. And if you give us honest reviews, we'll make the changes that you'll want to hear. Thank you for listening.